0: the other hard part when we're trying to gauge energy availability we're relying on two things an understanding of energy intake and an understanding of energy expenditure interestingly we probably have better methods of understanding energy expenditure than we do of energy intake because we can be far more objective with that with energy intake we're often relying on them telling us what they ate, and athletes are notoriously awful at this Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge
1: insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back or welcome to, if you're discovering us for the first time, the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs and this is season number seven. Today I'm chatting with Dr. Sean Arndt. Sean is currently the professor and chair of the Department of Exercise Science at the University of South Carolina and the director of South Carolina's Sport Science Lab. Previously, Sean was a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health and the director of the Center for Health and Human Performance at Rutgers University. In this episode, Sean and I chat about his work at Rutgers in collecting biomarkers over a four-year collegiate career in female soccer players, the effects of oral contraceptive use on performance biomarkers, and how to layer on biomarker testing in different sporting environments, as well as maybe the most important part of this podcast, which is the importance of actually taking care of yourself and your own health, because that's actually essential to high performance as well. Before we get started, a quick heads up. Athlete Performance Nutrition will be hosting the second annual Football Performance Nutrition Summit this June. Learn from leading experts in performance nutrition and sports scientists specifically for elite and professional football. Last year, we had speakers from the NFL, NCAA, and elite sport, such as Kate Callaway, Director of Performance Nutrition at the Carolina Panthers, John Parenti, Director of Nutrition at the Miami Dolphins, Matt Frakes, Director of Nutrition at LSU Football, just to name a few. Join us for free this June. That's right, it's a free event this June by signing up at AthletePerformanceNutrition.com forward slash summits. That's AthletePerformanceNutrition.com forward slash summits and be the first to hear about this year's all-star lineup and all the details. Last year, we had over 500 attendees from the NFL and NCAA performance staffs, as well as performance nutritionists and SNC coaches from all over the country. So register for FPN 2.0, the Football Performance Nutrition Summit 2.0, and we'll see you this June, 2023. For sponsor inquiries for the FPN Summit, please reach out to athletepn at gmail.com. All right, let's do this, my conversation with Dr. Sean Art. Sean, you're a busy man. Appreciate you covering out some time for us today.
0: Hey, it's always fun to talk to you, so this is great. I mean, anytime I get to talk uh, sports science with you for an hour, it's probably a pretty pretty good day.
1: Awesome, man, well, I appreciate it. and uh, I know you're, you know, lots going on, lots going on at the lab at the university. You know, maybe we can just start things off with, with what kind of projects you guys have been working on this last year.
0: Yeah. So we had finished up a few clinical trials with um, with some different nutritional supplements, uh, some work on CBD, a couple hydration studies. So we've been doing we've we spent an inordinate amount of time in the heat chamber this last awesome.
1: year. Awesome.
0: Which, <laughs> when you already live in South Carolina, it's not really. Like, <laughs> no. oh, this, yeah, this is great. I'm in the heat now. You're you know, you're double whammy. Um, So we've been doing a lot of that and we wrapped up some work that we had been doing on the military side of things with a big Marine Corps study that we had partnered with uh, University of Pittsburgh on uh, looking at gender integration and basic training uh, and then some stuff we've been doing with uh, Special Operations Command and DOD uh, looking at blood flow restriction training for um, sort of field expediency methods, you know, things that you could take into the field with minimal equipment. Um, So we've just got the manuscript going out for that that was approved for dissemination from the DOD, um, and that's been great. And then it's kind of fun. We've got a couple things going on right now, one that's funded um, from the Air Force, and we're looking at uh, caffeine and tea cream and various derivatives and looking at decision making under fatigue uh, in operators as well as tactical personnel. And then we've got another one with the Board of Medicine where we're using a device that is purported to influence autonomic regulation. Uh, and we're looking at that in individuals with a history of concussion, uh, doing high intensity exercise and then looking at ANS re-regulation, um, looking at cognitive decision-making and executive function and some of those things. And we got this sort of a smaller study, but it's a fun one that we've been trying to get up and running for way too long. And we just kept having too many other things get in the way. Um, But one of my master's students is actually working on an asymmetry study uh, in soccer players, looking at limb asymmetry. But we're taking a little different approach to it. And what we're doing is we're assessing strength, power and all that. So we're using four stacks. We're using some basic equipment, too, that any team could use to look at how well those match up. So if you don't have access to four stacks, other other things you can do. But what we're actually doing is a number of years ago, we had done a study, a caffeine study, where we had designed a soccer protocol for the treadmill, right? So we were basing on heart rate and GPS and distances. And so we had published that. And so we're actually using that 90-minute match protocol to then induce fatigue in the players and look at whether or not that exacerbates or diminishes some of the limb asymmetries we see. Because- just that asymmetry may not tell the whole story. The question is what happens then under fatigue in a match when you're exposed to it. So those are some of the things that we have going on right now.
1: I was going to say that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? During, during actual competition and fatigue states. And is that one that you guys have gotten through yet or is that still underway?
0: Still underway. I think we're about 22 subjects in on that one right now. Um, and we're trying to recruit 40. So we're, we're about about halfway through with that one. So hopefully we'll wrap that up in the next month or two. It just got hard because then we hit spring training for the teams here. And so yeah. then getting players in where it didn't interfere with their practice or they weren't fatigued from practice was a challenge. But we're getting there. We're just we had really gone fast for like a month and a half. And then we just hit this time of the year where they're starting to train as a team again. So we just we're a little a little slower, but we're getting it done. So the, the group is doing a nice job with that one.
1: Well, listen, that segues into uh kind of chatting about you know collecting data and collecting data overseas, yes. um, which is complicated on its own. I mean, whether it's <laughs> pro, sport, <laughs> pro sport, just getting availability to what you alluded to there. And of course, you guys measured power, endurance, body comp changes in collegiate you know, female soccer players. Now, if we start from a real 30,000-foot view, you know, young sport dietitian, performance nutritionist listening in, you know, what is this idea of collecting data over the course of a season? What's that really going to start to tell us and, and inform us when we go into the training side or the nutrition side?
0: You know, I think that anytime you've got sort of periods of data collection, you're getting snapshots into what's going on. Fortunately, we have techniques where you can get much more continuous type of collection, right? When you're looking at training load, whether it's heart rate, GPS, a combination of the two and things like that. And then implementing some tests that give you some insight into the performance aspects that go along with the sport, whether it's, you know, the fundamental physiological capabilities. If we're looking at aerobic power or capacity, if you're looking at anaerobic capacity, power production, you know, and even body composition, And we tend to rely on body composition a little bit differently it's not i don't want to make it sound trivial but it's not so much about the body fat percentage itself Mm -hmm. we're really tracking what's happening with fat free mass and the body composition proportions, right? Where, where in a year might we have athletes that gain a lot of weight, lose weight and whatever? And it's not to be like the fat police and we're not trying to do this to be uh, overwhelming with them. It's really meant to try to track how effective the training and nutrition strategies are for maintaining or even increasing fat free mass in season and trying to prevent some of the degradation that we might see that would be an indicator of overreaching, an indicator of just simply doing too much and under recovering, right? So we've tried to employ that. But I think when you have this assessment battery at your disposal, and especially if you're very consistent with it, one of the things that we have probably over the years really learned to appreciate more than anything else is. It's the athlete's own data. So when you're trying to get buy-in and you're trying to help them understand what drives their performance, you're not simply using textbook examples. You're not trying to just preach for the the why it's important and stuff like that. You're able to show them their N of one. But as a researcher, you get to look at it as a team. And so look, I mean, when you're working with 30 plus players, right? You have a program in mind, you have a nutritional plan that you try to implement. The reality is, it is so hard to individualize everything. But what we found is when you have those individual data, you can now take a team and train it more like a group of individuals to make sure it's sort of like the Goldilocks approach, right? Like it's just right. So, you know, a little too much for some, a little too little for others. And, And so trying to get to this better optimization of everybody, even if you want to put it in buckets, right, where you kind of realize you got a three or four tier groupings of athletes in terms of how they respond to training, you can now start to tweak what you do to better accommodate them to get the most out of them through the whole season. And we've even learned that lesson on the substitute side of things, because what often happens is if you're not in the starting lineup, you're not playing a lot we had a lot of athletes that would detrain throughout the year. So the lesson we learned is throughout the week, we need to give them more work so that heaven forbid an injury does happen or we need them to step up. They're physically ready to go. Right. And so being able to map them onto everybody else, I think, made a big difference for us. So so, you know, that's I think how we've employed it over the years and we've tweaked our approaches. You know, we're, we're very fortunate in addition to the soccer programs here and stuff. But we work with probably six or seven other teams in some capacity. I would say when we were at Rutgers and we had that relationship with women's soccer in particular, but also men's soccer, you know, we were able to get very deep with some of the stuff we did. And we had a very long-term relationship with them, which resulted in a really cool publication this past year, looking at changes over like a four-year college career. Um, But even here though, you know, being able to work with tennis and women's basketball and baseball and beach volleyball and volleyball and, you know, various sports in different capacities. um, It's really cool. One of my doctoral students is actually on a sports science fellowship with football here right now. You know, and so she's embedded in really running their sports science, which gives us a little bit more depth over there. But, you know, that being said, I'd say we're still scratching the surface. I think that what we can do to to grow sports science, to do sports science better, to provide context to some of the important lessons. I I think that's all part of the big plan and something we try to do a little better from year to year.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely a couple of interesting things there especially in regards to the substitutes i mean you see this obviously at the professional level collegiate level how do we yeah train everybody starters right. are logging long minutes now it's practice coaches grinding on all the players who say wait a minute some of these players have played quite a bit already these other right group like you say are a subset of players you can actually push pretty hard and we know now from some of the data that he can but uh, we need to be a bit more mindful of, of the rest of the group and if we circle all the way back to you know, what you mentioned there on body composition, I think that idea of the fat police is interesting because again, even in pro sports, I mean, when we, athletes are people, they're human. They think as soon as we're doing body composition, as soon as we're doing the pinch test, as soon as we're doing the DEXA, yeah. it's how fat are you and, how, can, you know, can we lose some weight? Um, so I'd love what you said there. Maybe you could, could we go a little bit deeper on that front? Because I think it's pretty interesting in terms of, you know, why did you guys use the, uh, you know, the bod pod or, or, you know, we talked about this a little bit on the last uh, time we had you on about the different. Assessment tools, but, but could you walk us through why you guys chose to use the Bod Pod versus Dexa and, and whatnot?
0: Absolutely. So, some of it's a convenience factor, and what do you have that is considered quality assessment that you can do repeatably Yeah. Um, you know, and one of the things that started is so when you know when we were in New Jersey when I was at Rutgers and starting with some of the athletes there. Access to DEXA was not so easy. There are different state laws there in terms of frequency, in terms of who can run it, who can interpret it. And there was a pretty notable cost to use the equipment. We owned the bod pod, right? The bod pod is in our lab and we were able to use it very frequently if we wanted to. And it was easy to get the players in. There's also a timing aspect, right? So if you're working with a team and you have limited time to do testing, but you're fortunate to work with a coach that values the testing. You need to be as efficient and economical as possible with their time. And so in some cases, we would choose tests based on not only their criterion validity and what we wanted to know about a particular energy system or physical state, for example, body comp, but we would also need to do it in such a way that it didn't take us all day to do it right? Where we could get through a whole team in a set period of time, or we could schedule it in a way where we could work with smaller windows of time, where we could get five or 10 people. And, you know, while Dex is not overly invasive, it's also not a particularly fast process. I mean, it takes a while, especially for the setup and all that stuff. Bod Pod, man, we could, you know, five minutes and you're on to the next person, you know, to to a great degree. So, so that was part of it. I think that you know we've progressed in some ways to also using ultrasound at times with some of the stuff we're doing to follow up with that uh, and looking at some muscle thickness parameters. Um, we're doing some stuff with in body right now as and well looking at segmental differences. But for purely tracking fat-free mass changes and overall body composition uh, and looking at the effects of training on that, as well as some of our dietary interventions, you know we found it to be more than sustainable, right? So that part was great, but it was also reliable for us. And I know yeah. people have issues with different ones, but here's the thing, is great as DEXA sounds to a lot of people, it's not without its problems. And there's not like there's not things that can influence its outcomes, including carb loading and other things like that. So, you know, there there's no particularly perfect assessment technique. I think at the end of the day, it's what do you have access to? What do you have access to regularly? And what can you reliably use in your population time and time again, right? So that you're not switching techniques all the time. You're not trying this, trying that. And so it's something that we've continued to rely on. We've got a a bod pod in this lab. We've got the new version that came out, but, but, you know, it's, it's worked well for us and it's, it's, it's field in some ways it's expedient, when you consider the time that goes into it as well. Um, there's other techniques that are faster. There's other techniques that are slower. We feel like we kind of hit on a nice, happy medium in terms of what works for us.
1: I mean, again, it's a great point about using something that's you can be nimble with, that if it's accessed in the lab, you can be really consistent with it. So I think that's a great point for the practitioners because you know, I've seen teams who've used DEXs and then all of a sudden have to use a mobile Dexa, and then the times of the day change. And to your point, now hydration's changing or carbohydrate intake, yeah. and so now there's a lot more noise than we, than we, than we thought we had with some of the measures. And when you see the results, you can appreciate. Wait a minute, what's going on? This can't be that much of a change in, you know, twelve weeks. So I think that's that's a really interesting point. And you talked about the BIA and having, you know, differences, yeah. hydration differences, that compartmental differences you're finding. Can you talk a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so it's something we're we're getting a little bit more and more into, and we have a great uh, young researcher here in our department now, Katie Hirsch, who just came to us from her postdoc, but she was one of Abby Smith Ryan's doctoral students at UNC, so she got a tremendous body comp background in terms of what she does. But she's looking more and more into the, the role that might play and being able to look at segmental differences, both in terms of hydration. And we've actually, from an applied standpoint, less research, we've we've used that in the past with some of the fighters we've worked with, both MMA and boxing, to get a sense for how much we could re- legitimately dehydrate them in order yeah. to make weight and be able to put it back on and what we were working with from that standpoint. It gave us a much better um sort of scientific approach to doing that rather than trying to guess and really screwing up the weight cut process. Um, So I think that's going to be really useful. And I think in terms of maybe looking at some muscle quality issues and looking at fat distribution issues that you may not necessarily need the DEXA for in that case, if it's not conducive for some people, right? What do you have access to and, and how often can you use it and things like that? You know, I think that some of these alternative approaches and trying to get at what the information is that it's really providing is really important. And I will say you made a great point, Mark, about the DEXA and sort of like these changing parameters and all that stuff. And I would say the one the one thing that we really make an effort to do and that I would encourage, you know, dietitians out there, strength coaches, sports scientists, whatever it is, practitioners, um, whichever method you use, get very consistent in how you do it. Right. So make sure you have got your parameters in place that you give your instructions you can't always control what the athletes do, but you can give them the instructions in terms of what they do or don't eat before they arrive, what time they arrive, the state they arrive in, have they worked out before or not, you know, all that stuff. And I think the more you can put those parameters in place, the more faith you're going to have in your data. Um, And not just because you get this massive daily fluctuation due to, you know, another extraneous influence. And and so I think just being smart about implementing control where you can implement control, because there's so many other things working with teams where you are not in control of of how they show up and what they do. But if you're going to do something like that, the more constrained you can make it, the better your chances of getting meaningful data and being able to work with that, too.
1: Yeah, you're definitely not working with a single endurance athlete where things are a lot more controllable. There's a lot of moving parts. Uh, And yeah, really fascinating, you know, the work you did at Rutgers over that collegiate career in in women's soccer. And, you know, you guys fighting, you know, between freshmen and, you know, junior seniors, obviously lower fat-free mass and and some of those power capabilities. You know, now we might say, well, typically we're going to see some of those progressions in in school, like it's it's with development. But that also provides some insight, doesn't it, in terms of what we might be doing in the off-season, Talk about how that would inform some of the practice of what the SNC side and the and the sport dietitians might be doing.
0: Awesome question, and that was really kind of an interesting study. We got very fortunate with that one, and I got to give all the credit in the world to Bridget McFadden uh, for coming up with that idea because we had been working with the team for seven plus years at the, at that point. So we had a ton of data, and what we started to realize is we had a very unique data set because. You know, you would think, okay, if you're working with a team that long, you get an end of well, like 50 that you could do a four year career, but you can't because you get a lot of transfers. You get players that transfer in, transfer out. You get some that just don't finish their career there. They get hurt, whatever it is, right? So, um, but it turns out that our, over that span, we actually had a pretty decent number that we had a full four years of data on, and we really wanted to truly go from freshman to senior. Right. Like what happens in a normal growth and development aspect of what's happening for for athlete development in this case. And really what we stumble on is there were a lot of things that don't change a whole lot in that four years. (laughs) That makes me question what we were doing and whether we were any good at it. Um, But the other aspect of it, though, too, is, you know, we had a lot, especially the, the longer we were with that program, their recruitment got significantly better. They started to get some really high level recruits and it's a perennially top program at this point. They're phenomenal. Um, awesome. But what was interesting is so you got a lot of players coming out of high level club soccer, you know, as freshmen. Right. So this is where they're progressing from. But what we noticed is as capable as they were as soccer players. And a lot of those players got a lot of playing time. Um, their power was lower then it wound up being by the end of their career, especially when we were doing counter movement jump with hands on hips, where you're taking out the momentum from the arm swing, which I would argue has real relevance for soccer, because if you think about it with soccer, if your arms are up above your head, when you're going up, you're getting yes. called for something or you got a handball, like something's yeah. not going right. right? So it's, it's the one where you often jump and arms are down. Um, But anyway, so we saw those changes. But what was also interesting, too, is the changes in fat free mass, and especially because the biggest increases in that appeared to occur from that freshman to sophomore and freshman to junior year. And then it kind of stabilized. Right. And so we saw that if you really look at it, it provides some interesting ideas for where there's some unique opportunities. And I would argue that then when you're in high school and you're whether you're playing club, you're playing high school, whatever it is, There's a unique opportunity there to be exposed to strength and conditioning and especially the development of power, especially in female athletes where power tends to be lower, but we've also seen to be related to injury risk and stuff like that. So here's a prime opportunity to come in more developed and for the strength and conditioning coach at the high school level to know maybe where these players are coming in and are not quite up to standard with where some of the older players are right? And soccer is one of the sports, let's face it, you get some absolute superstars at 17 and 18 years old. So it's not purely a physical development aspect. So there's a chance there for us to make that positive impact.
1: Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. A quick reminder, if you want to stay up to date on when each episode of the performance nutrition podcast drops and receive evidence-based insights every month, then join the athlete performance nutrition community by signing up. To our newsletter head over to athlete nutrition.com and sign up in the big black box all right let's get back to the conversation
0: the other thing too is i think for the strength and conditioning coach and the nutritionist or dietitian at the college level um over that four years how you manage those players and really take advantage of an opportunity again from junior to senior year to see if we can continue to progress them and it gets interesting when you have players in a program for a while is there a point at which they become complacent is there a point at which maybe the program hasn't progressed enough you know and, and in all fairness were we capturing all the data because we were using the time points where we had everybody for preseason, right but what's happening yep. by the end of the season and stuff? those are all still really good questions but because of things that happen during the season you may not capture all those players so we went with what we had for complete data over those, over, you know, an entire four year career. Um, And I really think it paints an interesting picture. And I would say too, given that fat free mass and the power aspect, there's also a chance for nutritional intervention with those high school players coming into college early uh, in order to do this. And it's interesting for those that aren't familiar with the U S side of NCAA and how the season works. You realize that with college soccer, some of these freshman athletes will play their first college soccer game before they ever take their first college class because of when the season yeah, starts. The so that opportunity to intervene earlier and the the more ready they come in, the easier their transition is going to be. And especially with the long competitive season. But it in some ways, you know, Mark, it's a little bit of a hallmark of what we've seen with one of the challenges with youth soccer and the club system is at what point during the year do you have off in order to physically develop and physiologically develop? You're just playing, playing, playing. We're seeing now that really as part of that club system, they really need to think about implementing strength and conditioning programs to get them ready for that next level and progressing into that. I think there's a missed opportunity there but whoever decides to get the most progressive with that is going to have a real leg up in recruitment, you know, from the standpoint of the way where their players go
1: obviously, yeah, it sounds like a big opportunity between that junior, senior year in, in high school. Yeah. And as you say, leading into that summer, that, that's an issue obviously in basketball as well with the whole right. AAU situation. So I'm just curious, like in a perfect world in your mind, is there a certain block of time or, or you know, how what's that minimal effective amount that we can aim for potentially with some of these younger athletes to get a, you know, a significant amount? Or is that, are we talking about stacking over years really to get, to the level we want.
0: I think we're really talking about the progression over the years. And the reality is, you know, you got you get a couple of things at play here. One, just playing is not going to do that. Right. And we saw this, it was interesting with with the men's team a number of years ago. We had a situation where you know the players are playing all summer. They're playing in some of the, the, the pro leagues are playing in some of the the, the semi pro leagues. Uh, some of them were playing over in Europe. Then they come back and they immediately go into preseason. So you're talking about an entire summer where they haven't been lifting. They've just been playing. And it never failed. Partway through the season, you start to see a performance downturn. They were shot, right? Because they had just been playing, 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 never preparing. And so there's a fine line there. And I think with those high school age athletes, looking at introducing them to strength and conditioning early And just simply making it a part of the program. And look, it doesn't have to be four and five days a week. If you were to start them and and you got them doing something along those lines, even one or two days a week consistently, that is going to help over time. And then if you can find periods of the year, even if it's six weeks here, eight weeks there, where you can design that as a true off season for them, where they can make progress physically and physiologically. Now that's a perfect time to maybe spend a little more time in the gym. Right. Because they're going to play. They're going to spend plenty of time on the pitch. Right. That's that's usually not the problem. But you've got to realize that for full physical development, there's other aspects that maybe can't be accounted for just knocking the ball around. Right. And we want to do that. You want to develop the technical and tactical skills. But at the same time, your ability to be fatigue resistant and to be physically resilient and all those things, a lot of that gets built up in other aspects of the year. And I think one of the best parallels I can draw is a lot of coaches that we've run into over the years, some are far more progressive than others, right? And you get some, that are like, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for lifting. We don't have time for, for sports science. We don't have time for testing. And then you got the others that go, you know, I know it might take away two days of practice for us to do this testing, but it might get me way more than two days back in terms of player hours because they're healthy and because I can gauge them better. So now my practices are more effective. And that takes a pretty special understanding of what you're trying to help them with. And it's not about control. It's not about disrupting their program or anything like that. It's about trying to help their coaching be easier Because now you have better information at your fingertips to use the art of coaching with the science that also goes with it to make good decisions. And I think when you're willing to invest that time and effort the same way an athlete or a parent or a strength coach can invest the time and effort for true conditioning at various times of the year, that only pays long-term dividends. You're going to find yourself on the field a heck of a lot more because you're better. Right. And so you're getting more playing time. You're going to play plenty of soccer, um, you know, and I think that's that's the reality. And then, you know, props to the coaches that make an effort in season to maintain their strength training program because of what they see the value. Of. It doesn't have to be a lot. Right. But, I, you know, the one thing I always heard from, you know, when coaches would be resistant to that would be like, well, then, you know, the you know, they don't lift during preseason. There's too much to do, and then they start lifting in the place. Like I'm sore. Well, we can't lift because they're sore now. I'm like, well, if you would have just kept lifting, they wouldn't be sore. That read they they they're yeah. getting adapted to it again. It'll it'll go away, you know. And so um, I think an understanding of that, and we also have to understand as sports scientists that is not the coach's fault, not at all, because most of them if not all of them, but certainly most of them are not trained in exercise science or sports science. So I'll tell you what, if they're not-
1: Default to their natural inclination, which is protecting the skill and the tactics and everything else.
0: And what they were brought up doing, right? Like what were they coached to do? And so I realized a number of years ago that if they're not buying in or they're not understanding, that's my fault because I'm the sports scientist. I'm the one trained in this. I'm not doing a good enough job of explaining it. So I will explain it again. And I will explain it again and I'll explain it again if I have to and meet them where they're at to help them understand where the value is. And I'll tell you what, if you really know what you're doing and you're more about the sports science than just the data analytics. Right. But if you understand context and you can put this into work, I will tell you what you will show results and the coaches will start to understand and you have to be patient with it. They might not be, but you need to be patient with it because it, it it can be very difficult to change a culture and an approach. And I've always said this like soccer's my sport, right? That's what that's what I play. That's my thing. But I've always said the one thing I love about soccer is the tradition. And the one thing I absolutely hate about soccer is the tradition. <laughs> <It's> the <laughs> tradition, yeah, exactly. Because trying to get us out of the way we've always done things sometimes is a real struggle. It is a real struggle. Um But when we do and we we really take the next steps forward, you have an opportunity to really get ahead of the crowd. Right. And instead of just doing what everybody else is doing, like lead the way.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating one because it really gets into that human aspect as well, both for the coach and the practitioner, because as skilled as you can be, as you know, it's like, what's the right day, week, month to talk to that coach so that they do have the bandwidth? If we expand further than that, you know, the organization, the management, whether it's a professional team, college team, like, are they all on board and behind it? It's amazing how once you get some alignment there, um, those conversations can get a little easier, but it's certainly, uh, there's certainly some art to that too, isn't there?
0: There is. And I think, and you, I mean, with the environments you worked in, you understand this better than probably anybody, but it's one of those things where there needs to be buy-in at multiple levels because one of the challenges when you're working with an athlete, right? And, and, and even when you're trying to bring the science and even the research we do, the reality is so many things that dictate that athlete's performance are actually out of their control when it comes to the training. So you need the yeah. coach and the management and everybody to understand the value of that and to be able to, let's say, first, if it's nutrition related as well, do they have the money and resources and the value that they place on that to make sure that's taken care of for the athletes, right? Do they have the right recovery strategies? Because a lot of times we get with a lot of these teams is they'll invest in all these really esoteric recovery strategies, but they're ignoring rest, food, and water, right? Like, I mean, it's yeah, ca- Cafeteria food
1: sucks, but we got all sorts of technology. Yeah, it's like, recovery. hey, we're good
0: though. We got Norma Tech boots. Like we're, we're good, right? We're yeah. gonna be fine. And you just look at it and go, man, you're, you're missing the low hanging fruit. Like you're, you're trying to put the the sprinkles on top of the donut. You don't even have the donut right now, you know? So what yeah. are you doing? And I think that the more we can relay that, and you know, unfortunately what winds up happening is I look, I'm biased. I think the kind of stuff we all do is really cool, right? I think it's fun to talk about. 100%. There's a sexiness to it. Like it's kind of cool, but at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff that really works isn't overly sexy it's still hard work fundamental nutrition and sleep and you know unfortunately when you got a lot of people hawking different wares and different wearables and different you know interventions and putting a new name to a program that's existed for 20 years like whatever it is like everybody wants that because they think that's the next big thing and it's great and you're like it might be but if you're not doing all the fundamentals that's that's a drop in the bucket and you're wasting your money. And it's always funny to me with teams where like, we don't have the money for that. I'm like, I just saw what you spent money on, and it makes no sense. So you had the money, but you went after the new shiny object like a crazy bird. And you know, now mm. you got no money left to spend on the basics. Right. So I think being smart about that and having the right people informing you. And as a sports scientist, as a researcher, as a professor, whatever it is, having the both the credibility and the willingness to tell it like it is right to be honest about it and and being smart about how you frame that though you need to be able to put it in their terms they need to understand what the value proposition on that is but you as that individual have to understand how to relay this in terms of return on investment what do you get out of it and you're almost using it like a marketing strategy so that they understand why mm-hmm. that investment is worth it but if you can't sell that then you probably are just spinning your wheels and may not really know what you're talking about because at the end of the day if it's that vital put it into terms they can understand
1: yeah it's amazing how return on investment sometimes people get you a lot further than oh yeah devices and technology and then circling back to your point it's amazing how good progressive overload and hitting your energy and macro needs and protein, you know? Yeah. How oh, get, boring though. No, we all knew that. Get, getting the hands, getting up. the hands dirty is a pretty good way to do it. But uh, yeah. again, if we kind of pivot back around to some of the work you've done and yeah. again, in female soccer players this time around, do we have different requirements regarding, you know, macronutrient intakes, et cetera. And of course you guys have done some work on oral contraceptive use on biomarkers, the effect yeah. of biomarkers and body composition over the course of the season really You know, fascinating area. One that it's amazing. It's sort of taken us this long to get more information around.
0: Man, you're not kidding, right? I was actually surprised at how novel this was when we did it. I was like, "Wow, there's really not much out there." Okay, we're 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 treading into new area here.
1: Can you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, so we had actually looked at oral contraceptive or OC users and non-users, and what we're looking at is again over the course of a season. Um, So we're very lucky working with the teams we worked with to have access to them in this way and to be collecting the data we did. But not only did we have performance markers, so we were looking at, you know, we had VO2 max, we had training load as well. So we had training load, energy expenditure, all these other factors. Um, We had body composition, as we've already discussed, and then we had a host of biomarkers, right? Because we were working with a lot of different panels at this time in terms of trying to identify what moves the needle, what's meaningful, what really responds to training or not, and and things like that. So we were able to partition this and separate it out by OC users and non-users. And somewhat surprisingly, there were some notable differences in terms of exposure especially to inflammatory markers so those in the oral contraceptive group actually had higher exposure over the season to cortisol uh crp um il-6 and some other and, and interestingly less estradiol progesterone lh and things like that and so it's interesting because what it lends itself to just purely from that aspect is if you think about it uh even if it's not meant as birth control, often oral contraceptives are prescribed because of irregular menstruation. And it's like, oh, well, here's the fix. Well, it's a band aid, right? You're artificially manipulating the hormones. So they, it seems like they're having a normal period, but it's not, it's, it's artificially influenced. But the other thing that was interesting too, is the training loads between the groups were actually remarkably similar. And as a matter of fact, The oral contraceptive group was a little bit lower, but yet had higher exposure to these catabolic and inflammatory markers. And we were like, whoa, I kind of thought maybe it would go the other way and that would explain it. It was the actual opposite. And then the other thing that we saw, too, is, well, not, you know, no huge body mass changes, but both groups um, increased fat-free mass over the course of the season. But the OC group was a very small increase in fat-free mass. The the non-oral contraceptive group actually was a much greater increase in fat-free mass, but also a greater loss of body fat. And so there was more of of a body composition shift in the non-OC users than in the OC users, right? So a lot of this was very new and there's probably people that'll hear this and be like, well, yeah, we knew that, it makes sense. But honestly, there hadn't been a lot of research on this. So it really kind of opened the door to start looking at some things because there had been speculation and still is, that maybe oral contraceptives may help with recovery and could actually help with um, uh, muscle mass and something like that. We're not seeing that, at least in that in a, in a free-living population. Yep. And, you know, and I'd argue that's where it really applies because we're not able to control this in a lab at the same way, and we can't account for those stressors in the lab. But it's interesting. We actually just had a study accepted to uh, MSSE, based on the care database, um, and we were looking at whether or not oral contraceptives had an impact on concussion recovery in female athletes, and it turns out they really don't. And there was speculation they did because they would control the progesterone levels. We didn't see it. You know, so I think there's some things that we need to re-examine and now start looking at in other experimental contexts, because we've looked at this broadly in more of a quasi-experimental approach, but I think there's some unique opportunities here to look at how this could be influenced long-term and what some of those long-term ramifications are too.
1: Yeah, definitely a fascinating area for, you know, female athletes. had Susan Kleiner on a few years back talking about about how maintaining menstrual function, you know, female athletes outperform those who didn't, and then Right sure. point, we tend to see, you know, that kind of medicalization of just, okay, we have an irregular menses, so we're going to put somebody on an oral contraceptive to help regulate things. And with I, the athletes, we don't tend to go down that road or perhaps more so now of like, okay, is there any low energy availability going on? Do we need to adjust nutrition? Do we need to adjust some of these factors, whether it's the training, the lack of sleep, all these sort of other stressors in the athlete's life, you know, oftentimes, you know, get things back on track. One, just curious, your thoughts on that side of things.
0: Yeah, it is, you know, it's interesting for me. So like reds and LEA, I think are funny concepts to me because they're very hard to prove. And like LEA is a funny one for me in particular because we don't really have an upper limit on it, right? So we know what's low, but then we'll say like above 35 calories per kilogram, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, but at what point do you get fat? Right. Like, so you know, I mean, like there's a point at which it's too much, especially if you're in an athlete who's trying to maintain weight throughout a season and stuff like that. So You know, the other hard part when we're trying to gauge energy availability and stuff is we're relying on two things, an understanding of energy intake and an understanding of energy expenditure, right? Those are the two parts of the calculation. Interestingly, we probably have better methods of understanding energy expenditure than we do of energy intake because we can be far more objective with that. With energy intake, we're often relying on them telling us what they ate.
1: Yeah. Not the best measure <laughs>
0: And athletes are notoriously awful at this awful,
1: especially after 10 PM,
0: you know, whole pizza or not, you know, and so the things they leave off. Mm-hmm. And, and so, and I've worked with pro athletes that have literally one of the, you're talking like a hundred plus million dollar contract and like being able to get them to accurately track food intake for like a week was hard because they have other demands and they just, it doesn't seem that important to them, but, it, it's funny and then we put this on college athletes for example or other athletes that that have these huge huge other demands and it's just hard to do and sometimes they forget sometimes they don't recall and sometimes they don't want to say right because they're like oh man I yeah. shouldn't have eaten that or or they know what they're supposed to be eating so they'll say that even though they didn't so that intake versus expenditure gets hard I think where we've seen people have the most success with this in my opinion is when they've tended to work with individual athletes or at least individual sports yeah. right like running cycling things like that when you start working in a team setting like basketball like you know with with, with work you've done with what we've done in soccer and stuff like that like oh man all bets are off when you put it in that team it's setting a lot of noise it, it's you know it, there's a whole different set of expectations there at times so so i think that's hard but i i will say though it's one of those things where you know if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck it's probably a duck and you know when we see this more often than not i think that even though it's a semantic issue, sometimes we have to question, are you overtrained or under-recovered, right? And that under-recovery often stems from two areas, food and sleep, right? And if we can match those onto it, you can do a lot to the human body. It's pretty impressive. And you said something earlier that I want to come back to real quick. You'd mentioned this minimal effective dose idea, right? Especially with like high school athletes and what we need to do. Yeah. And I think we hear that more and more in our world. Here's the, here's the the caveat that I've started to put on that idea is, to me, minimal effective dose in a performance setting means very little if you don't know maximal tolerable dose as well. Because you need to know where the turning point is, because let's face it, there's not a lot of medals that have been won on minimal effective dose right? Like just doing enough. That's not an athlete mentality. They will do it. The question is what's the most I can do before I break down. Right. And we find the sweet spot somewhere in there where sometimes it needs to be a little bit less closer to minimal effective dose to maintain them and get them through periods of time. Other times where we're pushing into the yellow and damn close to the red, and then we pull them back. But, but again, it's understanding those breaking points. And that's where we've used biomarkers so much is to get a better understanding of that, that that turning point like where's the tipping point at a maximal tolerable dose so that we know where to titrate from there and i think you put those two parts of it together and you have a much better chance of, of helping to build champions
1: yeah very well said i mean i think that's you know, ultimately sort of that continuum isn't it of trying to yeah. obviously with your grade school or high school starting out with whatever time you have to be able to get those years in and then start ramping up towards you know your maximum right. tolerable as you're saying and then you can really understanding yeah exactly how far you can push and exactly how much fuel needs to go in because i think yeah. it's tough for you know unless we st- with consuming sort of juices and foods that are really have a lot of concentration to them it's particularly around training as i'm sure you see with collegiate athletes it's uh, it's amazing how athletes especially skill sports get full and then it's like yeah i'm i'm good to go you're like well wait a minute we still have we're, we're only at about uh you know three grams four grams per kilo here we got a couple more to go Uh, before we hit hit that level but um
0: mark one of my favorite one of my favorite stories from our time researching with women's soccer again using their own data right and 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 it's interesting to me because i've realized i realized this in the last week so you know it's pretty new to me but i was at a conference last week and one of our faculty from south carolina was doing the keynote sarah wilcox she's amazing but she does a lot of community intervention stuff so like um they even do a lot of like physical activity faith-based research so they're in churches a lot But she has a real expertise in dissemination and implementation science. And she was talking about some of the things, especially with implementation science, you're trying to see if something works in the real world. Right. And so you're often criticized oh, you didn't have enough control over this or whatever. But your point is not about control, because when you remove control parameters from the lab and you put it into the real world, think about how many of our interventions no longer work. Right. They're not sustainable. They they don't work in that type of setting. And I'm listening to her talk about this from the standpoint of the work they've done over the years. And she's prolific. And it re- I realized I'm like, oh, my God, that's that's what we do in athletes just on a smaller scale with a team versus 37 churches. Mm-hmm. But it's implementation science. And the fact is, you can't control everything. And there's certain things you can certainly control in the lab. But other things, then you got to drop it into the mix and go, what happens, yeah. right? And your approach will change based on the dynamics of that team, right? So you're—it's a living lab in terms of what happens, and I think we need to do a better job of embracing that as reviewers for journals as well, and realize, yep, you're going to trade some of that—that—that that, that internal validity for a whole host of external validity, but. If you put it in the right context, it's probably more applicable to the next team than just what you mm-hmm. control lab. I would still say to this day, we have not done a true lab-based overtraining study. People think they have. At most, it's been overreaching. The true overtraining studies yeah. are the ones that have been done in the military, because Ranger training school—that's about the best example we have of putting somebody deep in the hole when it comes to physiological capability and recovery, and watching how long it takes for them to come out of that. That's the closest thing we have outside of a real world setting in sport.
1: it's pretty tough to do in a lab, right? Compared to
0: you know, a <laughs> oh, playing field, not uh, most certainly
1: a military. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no.
0: <laughs> you got to have a special group to do that. But I think, you know, with that in mind and, and looking at, you know, with the athletes and getting across where I started with this, my favorite story wasn't actually that about the conference. So when we're working with uh, women's soccer, we would use their data, right? So we would show them. And one of the hard things at times to work with with a female athlete is convincing them that calories are not evil little beings, right? Like you need need to feed the machine, fuel for the work necessary. And one of the best ways it's, it's important. Right. And so, you know, what do we need to do? And so, and it'll vary from day to day, right? Like you don't necessarily need to eat the same way every day, but you know, when you're playing a match and we've got data that suggests that some of these players are expending over 2000 calories in some cases, like you're going to have to eat. So getting that across at times is hard, especially with fat diets, especially with athletes that want to look good, right? There's still those social pressures and all this stuff, but I'll never forget. We have one of the players come off the field my doctoral student at the time, Bridget, was standing there and she had our iPad. We had our Polar uh, Pro, uh, Team Pro up and she's looking. And the player walks behind her, looks at her data and goes, all right, it's going to be a lot of food. And she walks away. And I just looked at Bridget and I smiled and I went, we got it. Like they get the, they're getting it now. Like they're understanding like you now have to replace that. And so, when they had the team meal after, and it was great, like parents would often provide all the food, they'd do it via tailgate. Like the players were like, okay, what did I expend in today's game? Right. And it's not like they're doing all the math in their head, but when you give them a number, you're like, 1200 calories, you know, whatever. And they're like, okay, like I'm not just eating a salad today. So they would go eat. And it was the coolest thing because, you know, I've been around situations where dietitians are afraid to let athletes know their caloric expenditure because somehow it's going to give them an eating disorder. We've actually found that when you educate them with it and help them understand what that means for their demands and their recovery, they start to embrace that and understand that food is fuel, right? And when you Mm -hmm. can get that part across, man, your job gets so much easier because now you can teach them how to fuel in certain situations and when to fuel and all these things and what to fuel and I think when we can start to get that across, we're doing a much better job. But that means that you need to take the time to educate them. And when you can use their own data, it means a heck of a lot more to them.
1: Yeah, it's amazing when you reframe that, even from that energy expenditure side and talk about what they have put out. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that conversation of what the plate's going to look like and everything else becomes less about this food versus that food and more about, hey, this is what you put out. We got to, the plate's got to look like this. And it's, you know, it does, it flips the whole, Yeah. Scenario on his head, doesn't it? You get engagement. And and like you say, the athletes want to know how much they need.
0: Let me ask you something with the with the environments you've worked in. How hard is it for you at times with fad diets to have to dispel myths and rumors at times? Because I've seen it in both male and female athletes across all kinds of sports. Where sometimes that's one of my hardest battles is helping them understand why these fad diets are not the solution when you're an athlete. Have you run into that?
1: Oh, 100%. I think between that and even terms like just the use of the word sugar, which it's a good thing that in general, we think it's quote unquote bad, which it can be obviously in scenarios. But um, well, I I learned a while back now to start asking them back the questions. I think before I used to always try to answer the question, you know, how is this diet? How is that diet? And now I would take more of the approach of putting it back on them to say, "You know why are you interested in this diet? What is this diet? And trying to yeah. get as much out of them as I can because I found that the the lecture side, you know they, they're not as receptive, right? They're not ready to catch right. catch that pass. whereas if if we can get a bit more information out of them, you can realize why they want to do it. I, I've had more success then because you can kind of link it back to like, oh, you want to get more powerful or you want to become, Um, but otherwise it's a tough, uh, if somebody's girlfriend, mom, best friends gone on a certain diet, even though they're not a professional athlete, for some reason they want to, you know, test, test it out as well.
0: You're right. And you know, it's interesting. I think one thing, my wife, Michelle is in sport nutrition. And, um, when she works with female athletes in particular, I think one of the the best things I've ever heard her say, she was like, look, we're going to talk about nutrition today. And what I'm going to tell you is you can be a great athlete and still look good in your jeans she's like you know so in other words like we can do this together like we're gonna we're gonna fuel you like an athlete and here's what we're gonna get out of this and i understand what you're concerned about but let's do it the right way you know and i always thought that resonated with them because they're like oh okay you get my dilemma like you get what i'm after and i think understanding that really helps and i think you're right like with the fad diets and stuff is like well what are you trying to get out of this and then sometimes when you can start that conversation the right way it gives you a chance to help them understand where the holes in the logic are yeah. right where it's like okay well that's fine but so here's how that diet actually works or here's how your body works right this is the this is what fuel actually is in that scenario and you know the other thing we're often battling too is is marketing i, I had to laugh oh god i've seen it a few times now but my favorite was at one point chipotle had cauliflower rice, right? And they offered that as the plant-based option. And all I could ever think to myself was, well, what the hell is rice? Yeah,
1: like, what <laughs> That's
0: are we doing? No plant-based, <laughs> you know? But it's like, it's the marketing term and, and turning it to that. I'm like, oh, please stop the madness. And it's so hard because you look at like what we're educated in and the people you talk to on a regular basis, the people I work with on a regular basis, athletes don't come in with that background. Right. So yeah. for them to cut through the noise and understand that it's so hard. And that's why I never take exception to any, any, you know, I don't look at it as a stupid question. I love when athletes will have that conversation with us about what do you think of this? Right, well, let's talk about the why and let's talk about what you're trying to get out of it. And let's talk about the fact that, Oh, that's illegal. Don't do that. You know? So <laughs> they're like little things depending on what it is that you're like, no, yeah. Okay. No conversation there. Just don't do it. Um, But it really, I think, makes a difference because it gives you a chance to educate them. And that's why I've never been a fan of meal plans. I've never Mm -hmm. been a fan of just telling them what to eat because then all of a sudden you drop them in a scenario where that's not available and they don't know what to do. Yeah, Like teach them about food, right? Same thing goes with training understanding why certain aspects of training happen at different times of the year how different exercises help you hurt you whatever it is so that if they're training on their own at some point like they understand it you're not they're not just following instruction they're doing it right and they're making good decisions based on how they feel that day too and i think having those conversations can be remarkable and you know we've been fortunate scientifically to get to publish a lot of the things that have come out of those relationships and the nature of the work we've done. But at the same time, we've been able to use that science to build better relationships and really work truly with the athletes, with the coaches. And I've been blessed to be around some awesome coaching staffs. I really have, like people that are progressive, that understand your value as an expert in what you do, and you appreciate their expertise in what they do. And when you can find those things come together, And you're on the same page and you're mutually respectful Mm -hmm. and you're respectful to the athlete. Um, I just think about some of the relationships I've built over the years and how many of them I still stay in touch with a decade, two decades later. Um, And I had them for this brief period of time and only did so much with them compared to day to day stuff. But you build those relationships because they truly understand that you care about them and that your biggest motivation is to see them succeed. You know, and to be healthy when they're done
1: with it. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that sort of that idea of the stupid question. I mean, I love the stupid question from the athlete because it lets us yeah. know they're letting their guard down and they're being a bit vulnerable right. for it. That's you. a good point. And then back to, you know, Michelle's point with the kind of the, the genes and whatnot, some of these yeah. simple heuristics that immediately can, can make a connection where the athlete now's got a bit of confidence in you. Okay, I, I this yeah. person knows where I'm coming from. Now all of a sudden they're right. ready to take on that information. So that's that's tremendous as well. I want to appreciate your your time here, Sean. If I want to pivot, uh, if we can, yeah. if you don't mind a- answering. I mean, I've got a lot of questions and concerns from coaches in different sports, on the health-based side of things. Right? Elite sport is stressful. It's long hours. All of a sudden, yep. you, whether it's job, kids at home, forties, fifties, sixties, you know, health conditions crop up uh, unexpectedly for, for for a lot of us, and sort of real life, yeah. it gets in the way. You know, and uh, you know, I don't know if you mind sharing you know, your recent experience and then kind of some of the things that you learned out of that. Cause I think a lot of people would get, get some benefit of that.
0: Yeah. Happy to. So interestingly enough, today is the one year anniversary of quadruple bypass for me last year. Wow. Um, So 365 days later, I'm here to tell you that it scared the crap out of me. Um, And it was one of those things where to give everybody the full story, a couple of years ago, after getting the COVID vaccine, I developed myocarditis and oh man i was struggling to be able to exercise i was breathless like exercise induced dyspnea like it was bad and they couldn't figure out what was going on finally did a cardiac mri saw that there had been damage and there had been the myocarditis okay that's fine so slowly but gradually start working through it i'm working on things to regulate autonomic nervous system and all this stuff but man it took the better part of six months for me to be any kind of way back right and it was weird i could lift but i couldn't do aerobic exercise it was damn near impossible yeah and it was scary. Anyway, got into a cardiologist or well, I was in a cardiologist because that's how I got the car- the MRI in the first place. And he wasn't very good at what he did. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember maybe the second time I saw him, he's like, oh, by the way, did you have the vaccine? And I'm like, oh, my God, you didn't put anything in my chart. Oh no. Um, so that's fine. But I was starting to feel better, got into a new cardiologist. And it turns out this guy is awesome, works with a lot of our athletes here at South Carolina. It turns out he and I went to UVA together wow. as undergrads, right? We were a couple years apart. So he gets in and he goes, You know, I want to do some follow ups though, just to make sure that the recovery is good. Everything's good. Like you're doing better now. You're back to a lot of your activities, but let's make sure we're not missing anything because if there was damage in certain areas, there's different drugs we might want to use to make sure that long term we're good. I'm like, Yeah, no, it sounds great. Appreciate that. That's good. So off I go. This is in December and we're going to schedule this for like February, right? No problem. So all through January, I'm skiing. So I think through January and early February, Oh, I think I covered about 90,000 vertical feet. Um, you know, I was out in <laughs>
1: nice Park City We're doing this
0: and all this stuff. So I get back, go in. And I remember distinctly, it was the day after Thanksgiving or not after Thanksgiving, after Valentine's Day, which was kind of ironic. Um, go in and they do a CT angiogram and I'm come back to my office. I'm talking to I'm on a, a video conference for a dissertation defense and I see the heart hospital calling. And I'm like, hmm. I should probably take this. I'm like that's kind of weird. Mm. So it's him and he goes you need to stop whatever you're doing. He goes I did not expect to see this. We've got big problems. And he's like there's and all I hear is blockage, next thing I hear is open heart surgery, bypass stent and my world just shut down. Wow. And I didn't know what to do. And I'm like oh my god, so my first question him like as I'm like trying to keep myself together I'm like will I be able to get back to doing the things I love to do. Like I love to lift and mountain bike and surf and ski. He goes, not only do I think you'll be able to get back, you're probably going to be better. You probably don't even realize how much this has been impacting you. And there's the interesting part of the story is now that I'm a year out and seeing what I've been able to do to recover, there were definitely signs and symptoms before. I just pushed through them, right? You're that yeah. aging athlete. I'm just, you know, I wasn't, I hadn't, hadn't been an aerobic athlete for a while. You know, I was really focused on power and strength. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta, uh, that's all it is. I just get more fatigued. Anyway, uh, February 28th, they wheel me in after doing a, um, uh, so we had done a uh, um, uh, angiocath, right? They go in and they're like, yep. So it turned out I had two arteries that were 100% blocked and two that were 70 to 80% blocked, one of which was the left main. What had saved me is the amount of exercise I did and my nutrition because what had happened is I had developed a ton of collateral vasculature. And so my heart was literally backfilling where blockages were. So it was still getting blood and oxygen to the heart muscle. Moral of the story is most of this, they said, they were like, they're looking at this like this based on the patterns and everything that's genetics and stress. And I'm like, super. And it's funny because there's a strong history of heart disease on my mom's side of the family. But when you're in your twenties and thirties, man, you're not paying any attention no, to that. Of like, course not not. Me, And Oh, they just, they didn't take care of themselves or their diet was bad, whatever it was. Right. And all of a sudden it happens to you and it's a wake up call. And I will say that I really wish like you can't change history right but you look back and i'm like i wish i would have put more emphasis into aerobic work you know even with the lifting i did and all that stuff it wasn't enough like there is a value there from 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 a coronary standpoint fortunately for me the existing heart damage from the myocarditis was pretty minimal and it already started to repair so most of it was just reattaching the tubing to where it needed to go The surgeon came out after, what is it, six hours of surgery, seven hours, and tells my wife, he's like super geek. He's like, that went so well. There is so much blood going to his heart now. He goes, because of all those extra blood vessels. And so he's like, I wish they all went like this. So I was out of the hospital within four days. We went home. And uh, my thought process was, once the surgery's done, that's the part that's out of my control. Once the surgery's done, the rest is me. Right. And now I own this. And it was interesting how despite having not competed or played in so many years, um, the athlete's side kicks back in and there's that competitive aspect. And it's like and so I started to approach every day in every rehab session. And as soon as they, they let me get up, I was walking. I did I was doing multiple loops around the ward. We actually got called back one night while in the hospital because they lost track of me because it turns out the <laughs> telemetry didn't go that far. And they're like, where'd you go? Where's this guy? So like, sorry. Yeah, but I was just bound and determined to do what's, and that was the question we asked before we left hospital. What's the maximum I can do, right? And I won't do more than that, but what can I do? So they told me, and we're like, okay, we're on it. Started cardiac rehab uh, four to six weeks after that. Was doing my work at home on a regular basis, getting on the treadmill when I could, getting walking outside when I could. And it was a struggle, man. It was hard, you know, but I looked at it as an opportunity every day. And what I realized is every day, there were three people at my training session. There was me, there was past me, and there was future me. And every day I was trying to gain ground on past me, and I was trying to close the gap on the future me. And what was cool is the healthier I got, the more fit I got, future me got fitter too. So I had more to chase. Awesome, Right? And so I've used that mentality every day. We just got back from a trip to Aspen last week. So I was skiing all week. We were in, you know, snowshoe before that. We're heading out to Winter Park next week and there's been ups and downs. There's been setbacks. I've developed an arrhythmia as part of the surgery. And so, um, I'm probably going to have to have an ablation at some point with that, but it's not, you know, that could be a month, two from now, but, but it doesn't typically impact me every day. Every once in a while it'll flare up and it sucks, but, um, I own it. It is what it is. And so it's funny, uh, for my 49th birthday, I ran 4.9 miles, rode 4,900 meters, and then squatted my body weight 49 times. Amazing. I will tell you right now, of all those decisions, the squats were the dumbest one by far. And I was so shot. I was so sore the next day. But that being said, I couldn't tell you the last time I had run five miles, right? And then to do all that consecutively, and it was. And so, you know, surgery was in February, that was in December. And in between, I had milestones that I was trying to hit. And there were little markers that I used as I'm back, right? So, you know, what, what activities? First time I was back mountain biking, the first time I was able to run, the first time I was able to lift again, you know, all these things. So I really tried to, to, to manipulate that and, and own it as much as possible. So today, to celebrate one full year, my crazy workout for the day was nothing. I walked right. the dog and I just enjoyed the fact that I'm still alive. And I thank God, I thank my surgeon, I thank my cardiologist, I thank Michelle for being so supportive. But I think the the, the reality is I had a number of friends that since have gone and gotten checked out because they're like, if this can happen to you, this can happen to you. And some of them found some stuff early enough, like it's going on, mm-hmm. but they're like, I can now be more prophylactic, like I can do something about this. So, you know, I, I guess in that case, if that was a good thing to come out of this so that other people took notice, um, I'm good with that. You know, and so I always say the the irony for me is COVID probably saved my life because if it hadn't been for my reaction, I probably wouldn't have had any of this looked at until I was dead. Right. And that was the thing wow. is they, they said a heart attack could have happened any day and how it didn't. They have no idea. And I think a lot of it is I'm just really stubborn. I think that's part of it. But (laughs) that stubbornness probably almost got me in a lot of trouble too, because there's a lot of things that I ignored over the years. And so, you know, if there's a genetic history, if you're dealing with a lot of stress, um, I'm trying to find ways to reframe how I deal with stuff. I will say that my new mantra, if something starts to upset me, or I'm dealing with like an emergency in the department that somebody else has created, I always ask myself, is this worth my health? Right. And Pretty much always the answer is no. And so you kind of get that back under control and work on it. it's a daily process, though, Mark. I mean, it's one of those things where I'm constantly working on it. Um, I feel good. I'm very grateful. Uh, but the reality is I am also very lucky because as a sports scientist, as an exercise physiologist, Knowing what I know has helped my recovery. I don't know. And I didn't have a lot of lifestyle stuff to change. It wasn't wasn't that daunting, right? And I had a very supportive wife who knows this area. This is her training as well. I don't know how people do it that have to change their diet, their lifestyle, know nothing about exercise, know nothing about nutrition, and they have to reinvent everything. And I think that that has given me a brand new appreciation for how we need to go about explaining things and helping during that process and how health and performance are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. I think for a huge part of my career, I was convinced that was the case. And I'd say over the last decade, and especially over the last year, um, the best ability is availability. And so to be able to be healthy, to be able to do these things and be smart about it, um, it's funny, it, it really matters. And I will say I've caught myself a couple of times where I'm like, oh, man, I don't know what's wrong. I feel like I'm starting to get setbacks and this, that. And Michelle would look at me and go, what's your training data? You know, so I tell her, she goes, if this was one of your athletes, what would you say to them? And I'm like, you probably need recovery. It's <laughs> like, you get locked in on the, I just want to be better. Like, mm-hmm. I want to get better today. And so you realize that that mentality, while it will move you to the right direction in a lot of things, can also be one of your worst enemies when you're trying to, um, make good decisions about optimizing training and nutrition. So there's a, there's a tipping point too. I was definitely in that yellow at times. So, um, I, thanks for asking. And I don't mind sharing the story because I want people to understand that, you know, pay attention to how you're feeling, pay attention to what's going on, get checked out. Uh, but at the end of the day, we're all going to have setbacks. There's going to be stuff in life that you don't plan for. The best piece of advice I can give is whatever you can control control those controllables, right? Because your effort and your attitude are in your hands. And I just refused to be defeated about it. And there've been very few moments where I've truly gotten down about it because I realized it wasn't going to do me any good. So I think having that approach and having that psychological resilience that you try to build as an athlete, um, I think makes a difference. And so, uh, and this, you know, this isn't meant to be a pity party. This isn't meant to be like, wow, I can't believe that happened. It's more about, man, choose, choose your path. Once that stuff happens, injuries, right. You look at athletes that potentially have career ending injuries or, you know, knee injury, hip injury, back injury, head injury, whatever it is. And it's like, you know, life will throw you some curveballs. That is one definite. And so how you pursue it from there, um, that can help define you right but don't let don't let the injury the surgery the uh the damage Define you your response to it is really what drives it
1: well listen thanks for sharing it's I've had a recent yep. run of a lot of coaches in different sports seemingly reaching out and and struggling with health issues 40s 50s 60s yep. and significant ones and it's a powerful message and I think hearing it from someone like yourself as well of, of really kind of owning it um and that idea that human performance isn't just for the athletes extends to the rest of the performance staff it's as not- well. And just what you said, like, had you not been where you were with your fitness and your nutrition, so the onus is on yeah. all of, you know, us and the rest of the folks to, to start putting some bricks down and, and getting, you know, leveling up to, as well so that, you know, they, you can better support your your yourselves and your teams and all that. But I, I do appreciate you sharing that because, again, I think.
0: Absolutely. And thanks for asking. Yeah. And I think that the reality is it's one thing to be alive. It's another thing to live, Mm. you know, and I think that enjoy the moment, enjoy the search. You never know when the lights are going out. Uh, Life's not a dress rehearsal. Um, And uh, yeah, it's interesting. But I would say to a lot of the coaches uh, to the retired athletes and things like that, stress is very real. Right. And we try to power through and push through. you got to take care of yourself too. Without any stress, we die because it doesn't force change and adaptation with too much stress you die because it overwhelms the system so find coping strategies find people to talk to find ways to take a break it's something that i am more and more appreciative of um but it can be a real killer don't ignore the blood pressure get your blood work done do all these things that you know that that you're probably thinking, I don't. I'm fine. I'm healthy. I'm, I'm I'm active. But there's other stuff that can happen too that is out of your control. Um, And if that's my legacy, if that's what people learn from it, then I'm okay with that.
1: Well, it feels like you got a legacy on two fronts. So that's uh, appreciate all yeah, the I appreciate insights that. of the performance Thank side. Thank you. Appreciate the wisdom yeah. as well. And we'll include the links, obviously, to yourself and the cool. and the university. Anything else, you know, uh, to to include, just just let us know. And you know, appreciate you. you carving out some time.
0: Mark, always fun with you, man. I appreciate the time you put into this.
1: Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can find the full video interviews on YouTube at the Performance Nutrition Podcast channel. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you, and see you next time. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's
0: Performance Podcasts.